Marcus Molansky was born in Kiev, Ukraine, to Jewish parents. Her family immigrated to the United States in 1976, where her father founded the Kiefer company, Lifeway Foods. Smolansky joined the company in 1997 after graduating from the University of Chicago with a degree in psychology. After her father died of a heart attack in 2002, Smolansky, age 27, became the youngest CEO of a publicly traded firm in the history of our country. She then, alongside her brother, who served as CFO, transformed the company into a multinational firm, growing its revenues from $12 million to over $130 million in 2015. Smolansky was featured on Fortune's 40 Under 40 list in 2014. Even more impressive than her tenure as a corporate executive is her service as a board member to organizations like the Anti-Defamation League, the Hebrew Immigration Aid Society, and the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center. Smolansky has also been very active in the conversation about sexual violence, both as an advocate and a survivor, and served as the executive producer of an award-winning documentary, The Hunting Ground, an expose of rape crimes on U.S. college campuses and the devastating toll they take on students and their families. Julie is yet another example of a powerful woman that has made a difference with her outreach and involvement. And why I feel lucky to have her on the show today. Well, there's our legal warning, Julie Smolansky. Thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. <laughs> so on that point, let me set the table a little bit for our listeners, because I know you know all this, and then we'll get into it. Cool? Sounds great. Okay. So you're best known for being a bit of a badass in the world of business specifically in your role as president and CEO of Lightweight Foods, which is a publicly traded company based in Chicago. Uh, and you guys focus on natural, organic, and GMO foods. But that's not the reason we're here talking today. We're here to talk to you about your dedication to shining some light on a very dark place in our culture. And uh, over the past 30 years, you've worked on eliminating the global epidemic of sexual assault, rape, and abuse. You developed the first teen dating violence curriculum in Chicago over 30 years ago, became a certified rape crisis advocate and supported survivors at hospitals when their rape kits were being collected. You've counseled children who were traumatized in protective services. You staffed a number of crisis hotlines, produced a number of documentary films, one of which we'll get into today, which was The Hunting Grounds, which was nominated for an Oscar, won an Emmy, had many human rights awards, and was nominated for Best Documentary of 2015 by too many organizations to chronicle here. You helped lead the effort for rape kit reform laws across the country. You've traveled around the world to advocate and give voice to survivors. As someone who has previously experienced significant trauma yourself through sexual assault, which, again, I'm so sorry to hear about, and I was fortunate enough to watch you speak on this at the summit in the desert a few weeks ago. It was heartfelt and wonderful. And again, sorry you had to go through this. But to quote you specifically from an interview in 2021 by Rain, which is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization, you said this, I know something about trauma and living with it, healing from it. And now more than ever, I feel the urgency to share that message with others. The pandemic and lockdown impacted everyone. No matter who you are, where you live, the pandemic touched every single person on earth, but for survivors, it was especially challenging. And so I think it may be a good place to start just because I did as much homework as I could on you and your advocacy. But the piece of content that rings loudest to me was this wonderful documentary that you championed in 2015 called The Hunting Ground. I want to talk a little bit about what spurred you to do this and some of the folks, some of the fine folks you got to help you do this. Want to start there? 
Sure. Thank you so much for that incredible introduction and rundown over my career. Hmm. Um, it really is surreal to reflect on the journey of being in this fight um, and the privilege that I've had to participate in it. Um, and I really feel like it is a privilege. People have trusted me with the most painful, challenging, um, you know, nightmare experiences of their lives and then also look to me to help move forward and find light. And I hope that, you know, for anyone going through um, trauma, they can, you know, look to me as a role model as I've looked to others. And when I started doing this work, there weren't that many. Um, and it was really hard to find survivors that were open and public with their experience because it's been in our society and in most societies, violence against women is incredibly stigmatized and um, taboo and something that remains in the dark and not talked about and hidden for generations and generations. And it thrives in secrecy. That's why, you know, perpetrators um, can get away with it because they know that most survivors will not come forward. And um it's a power dynamic and part of patriarchy and such a complex issue. But for me, um, you know, after my experience of assault uh, happened, I felt like, first of all, I knew that I wasn't the only one. You know, I think um, in school hallways, we kind of, you know, rumors were sp spread about which girls what and girls talk and boys talk. And, um, you know, I knew that I wasn't the only one that had experienced what I experienced. And I knew that there would be other girls after me. And I really just, I don't know, it was part of my fight that I wasn't going to just stay silent. Um, even though I didn't report my experience, I did go in and fight in my community. And, you know, I never named myself as a survivor. I just name this as an issue that was important and that, you know, we needed to fix. And this touches everybody, you know, it's one in three, one in four women are assaulted before they're the age of 18. Uh, one in three women will be raped, beaten or murdered in our world. One in three, by the time the hunting ground, as, as I built my career uh, and, and continue to advocate in this space, I also knew eventually that for me to really do this work, I would have to one day put my my own face and name to the issue and say that I myself am a survivor. Um, I knew that that would be really important, not just for myself to honor my own story and my own truth, um, but to also uh, let other people know that they can move past this and like survive. Anyways, this film came along. Um, I was offered a producer uh, role in it. And I jumped at it. I said, I want my name on this. I want to see my name on this because I did not report my assault, but I did want to put my name on this. And it was a subtle way to um, kind of take back some of that, that power and control I had and really um, be a part of changing our culture. And I think that now when I look back on this 30 plus year of fight in this movement, that I can definitely say I put a few tiles down on this great mosaic that we have. And the fight is far from over. 
But um, I definitely with certainty can tell you that uh, after the hunting ground and after the Oscar performance with Lady Gaga and the 50 survivors, um, and then shortly thereafter, about 10 months later, Me Too broke, I knew that that film was a big reason why Me Too movement happened. Why? Because it was all of us together, 50 or 50 survivors plus Lady Gaga on stage for Till It Happens to You, which was the song that Gaga wrote for the film, The Hunting Ground. That was the moment um, when it was nominated and we were uh, given the opportunity to do the performance. That's when I came out that they, the producers, the other producers called me, um, Kirby Dick and Amy Zaring called me and said, you know, we know that you're a survivor because that was a private conversation we had. You know, you're a survivor. Would you like to join the other survivors and got on stage? And I was like, yes, I had four days to think about it. <laughs> four days. I was like, if you're going to come out as a survivor and to the world, this would be the way this would be, the, you know, and I had for a long, long time looked at like, what, how would I do that? You know, how would I come out? And and this was the moment. And um, my life has never been the same, really. Um, it really has been a change um, and I'm proud of it. Um, and it was long overdue and it feels like a weight has been lifted off of my shoulders and uh, it's really nice. Well, that's great. So that was the piece of the story that really jumped out to me when we met Julie was that not only had you not come out, you kept this hidden for a very long period, is that you actually came out on national television with Lady Gaga at the Oscars. Couldn't agree more. And I think that part of your, another person that stood out immediately was you featured a clinical psychologist named David Lissick, who himself was a survivor of abuse. And he launched something called the Bristle, Bristlecone Project in 2012, which aims to introduce men who've been sexually abused to each other to make them feel less alone, which I thought was fantastic. He was also a central thread to much of the movie. Um, and I think he was a wonderful, I did some homework on him myself. And so I think his advocacy and everything he's doing is also amazing. And let me share a few stats that hit me pretty hard with your movie, just so the listeners kind of understand a, a small capture. 16% of college women are sexually assaulted. You mentioned 30% because that's a stat worldwide, but 16% of college women are sexually assaulted while in college. In 2012, 45% of colleges reported zero college assaults. And this is from Washington Post in 2014. Berkeley from 20, 2008 to 2013 reported 78 sexual assaults, had three expulsions. Dartmouth from 2002 to 2013 had 155 reports, three expulsions. Stanford had 259 reports of sexual assault with one expulsion. UNC, 136 sexual assaults with zero expulsions. University of Virginia, 205 with zero expulsions. Sadly, I could go on for quite some time here. So there's also been numerous studies uh, specific to chronicled rape allegations and the false reports, depending on the data are anywhere from two to 8%. But the aggregate itself was pretty much gelled on 5% of false claims. So 95% of assault claims on college campuses are in fact legit. They are true. So if that's the case, then something's amiss based on those statistics. Less than 8% of men in college commit more than 90% of sexual assault. 
Repeat offenders come in an average of six or more active sexual assaults. Percentages of rapes reported to the police in the U.S. that lead to an arrest is 26% based on FBI data. And percentage of rape support of the police in the U.S. that are prosecuted is 20%. That's an FBI stat from 2010 as well. And so those were the kind of things that were shocking and maddening to listen to and to watch. And then during my homework before this chat, I read some books that talk specifically to this. I think I mentioned to you off camera, one of the women that I have become friends with over the years or over the last year based on my homework on feminism is a woman named Julie Bindle. And she wrote a book called Feminism and Women. And she has been a chronicled advocate on the violence against women and girls for four decades now. And she travels the globe doing everything she can to stop prostitution, to help crush the patriarchy in this sense. And uh, full disclosure, she's actually an editorial board member of True 30 and a a journalist here now, uh, part-time with me. But she has taught me a lot about this. And as I mentioned to you off camera as well, David Lissick actually brought this to me. Um, Even the homework I've done over the last year, I did not even realize that men were also raped on college campuses. And the same thing stands true, uh, specific to reports. So one of the things that was really frustrating for me to read and to listen to and to watch in your documentary was that these are, ugh, shouldn't laugh, real questions offered up by administrators to survivors, to young women that were unbelievably traumatized when they went there to talk to them. What were you wearing? Why didn't you fight him? How much did you have to drink? Did you say no? This might have a negative impact on his athletic career. And I think my, my I don't want to say favorite because that puts it in the wrong category. And I don't have her name because maybe it was hidden from this. But, well, there was a woman named Annie Clark who we have to talk about at length, who was featured in the documentary at UNC, who was raped. And she went to talk to the administrator at USC. And the, re- the administrator's response was this, and I quote, Well, rape is like football, Annie. If you look back on the game and you're the quarterback, is there anything you would have done differently? And Annie's response was, I thought, polite. But she said, no, rape is not like football. It's nothing like football. (laughs) And I won't go further into that story, but it, it really surprised me. And as someone who's reported on a lot of shocking things over the last year, this was gobsmacking for me. I, I just couldn't believe that that, and I don't know if they, I, I tried to find out if the administrator was fired, but I couldn't find, I don't know if you know if that person was let go because she shouldn't, he or she should not be in that position at any university ever. Uh, I just don't know exactly what happened to that person. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your homework on this. Is, is this typical of universities when young men, mostly young women come forward obviously young men too, but when young women come forward with this tragedy and they have the power to actually share this, this response can't be anything but a punch in the face. Completely. It is like, it is uh, exactly just like that, a punch in the face after, you know, going through something like this then to not have, um, you know, being met with uh, compassion, empathy, uh, just basic humanity, uh, but also a policy after so many years um, just to continuously sweep it under the rug, pretend like it didn't happen, 
um, you know, not ruin the university stats on crime because God forbid parents won't send their kids to the school. They'll think it's dangerous. Um, that that's the that's the problem. Uh, and it goes so much deeper. Hopefully things are changing. Uh, after the hunting ground, over 300 universities uh, did a policy change uh, and reevaluated how they would handle um, claims of assault. And it is the most underreported crime. Sexual assault rape is by far the most underreported crime. It is incredibly embarrassing um, traumatizing to have to talk about it, have to, um, deal with it, you know, and, and everyone responds in a different way. There is no right way to respond. Some people just don't want to ever talk about it, think about it. Um, if it was only so easy to make such, you know, to be like, I don't want to talk about it and move on, but that's not really the case. Um, it is, uh, something that takes, time to work through and to heal. So it's important that survivors have, uh, you know, therapists, counselors to help them work through their their trauma. And it's important to be validated. Um, I think the most important thing to tell a survivor is, you know, I believe you. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, it's not your fault. I believe you. Um, those are probably the two most important things to say. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I, I really applaud Annie for fighting for herself and advocating for herself to see justice at her school and every other school in the country. Um, and so today, because of Annie's work, because of the work of the hunting ground, hopefully the most universities have, um, developed a different protocol for what they have to do, that it no longer uh, matters if the person behind the desk, what they're thinking. It, I don't care what you think, I, I you know, behind your desk uh, that you're protecting your university. I want to know that there is a policy in place for what they're going to do, how they're going to hold a perpetrator accountable. What is their pr- process of, um, you know, documenting and um, investigating claims like this and, um, what resources are provided for survivors so that they can heal? Um, because we've heard so many um, horrific stories of survivors uh, taking their own lives after assault. That statistic is incredibly high uh, for, you know, and, and that's the biggest tragedy of all of this, that these survivors needlessly took their own lives because they were not they were not given tools to move forward and heal. Um, and that their perpetrators were uh, enabled to continue their their schooling, their sports, athletics. You know, for these universities, their athletic department, their football, their baseball, their basketball, <clears throat> these are the biggest revenue streams for them. Mm-hmm. And if they have a player who has um, gotten away and has, you know, a serial perpetrator, many of these are, uh, serial perpetrators, repeat abusers, because they keep getting away from it. They know they can take whatever they want and no one's going to hold them accountable and they will just keep going and keep going. And we see it over and over again. Um, the stati- it is really shocking. It's, 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 um, it's just absolutely shocking. And then they go on to pro and then they do it 
again and again, and we see it over and over again. And, um, you know, I think we all uh, feel like it's time to stop. Same thing with the um, with the Greek system. You know, we see higher numbers of assault uh, within the fraternities and and the parties, and you know these these horrible situations where um, they're encouraged to go and rape their classmates, um, and and without any sort of accountability, there um, that's the culture of abuse that exists on campus. And the most dangerous time for a, a woman on campus is the first six weeks of school. Um, that's that is the most kind of called the red zone in in our world, and it is a time when um, you know we really do need to offer students the most support and guidance, and and have these conversations around what is consent, you know what is what is undeniable consent, you know what is explicit consent, what does that look like? I mean. We throw these kids in together at, you know, young ages and we give them no tools around the rules of engagement, around what real intimacy looks like. Um, and I think that, you know, toxic masculinity and its role in our culture also has a huge um, uh, place in this conversation. And, and I think we need role models, male role models to step up and show us what real uh what what it looks like to be intimate, what it looks like to have conversations around consent and um, to be an upstander, not a bystander. If they see their classmates being abused or uh, they see classmates being the perpetrators that they intervene, we really rely on our um, males to be allies with us in this conversation because I don't think anybody wants to see this happen. They don't want to see their friends hurt like this. Um, at least, you know, the, the, the men that I know don't want to see this happen. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh. yeah, no, that's, that's all. Thank you for sharing all that because that, I think for our purposes, cause I wish I had you for three hours to talk about this, but we want to, for somewhat of a brevity's purpose, let's focus on UNC because I think that was where a lot of the story focused, specifically Annie Clark and Andrea Pino. And these were two young ladies that were raped, violated, and same thing. They went to the administration, and the administration basically said, hey, they asked them all the aforementioned questions, didn't really make them feel any better about themselves. And this was one of the big light moments in the book, or in the, in the actual documentary, was the power of these young women collectively. They went ballistic, and they got together as a group, and they fought Title IX, and they went after the university, a 200-year-old university was, I think, wonderfully challenged by these young ladies. And the neat thing about both of them is that they went through the same thing you did. They stood up to their, their, their violent offender. They went after the university. And not only that, they did exactly what you said you needed when you were a young lady, was that they made other women feel less alone. And one of the neatest things about this documentary was how the technologies that you didn't have available to you were available to these young women to be together. They were on Zoom. They were crying together. They were laughing together. They were making each other feel part of a sad group. You know, you don't want to be part of this group. But if you are part of this group, you know everyone there understands and there's no judgment. And that way they can actually be there for one another, not just in the moment, but they know that they can go back to these to these young ladies as support group and as someone who understands 
sadly, the level of violence and betrayal that takes place in one of these circumstances. So I do you want to talk a little bit about the UNC Title IX violation, what they did, why they did it, and how powerful that is across the board, specific to universities? Yeah, I mean, the the work that Annie and, and Andrea did really laid, laid the foundation, the work for the White House to help uh, come in and investigate the Title IX uh, issues that, you know, uh, we are all entitled to an education. That's just part of, <laughs> that is what Title IX says. Uh, that we are we are entitled to an education and we it should be safe. You know, our environment should be a safe place. And, you know, because the universities were not providing a safe place for an education, that's where their Title IX funding was uh, was pulled or threatened. to. Pulled. And so, yeah, I mean, I think every university looked at these cases and said, oh, we, we have some work to do. So, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I think, you know, taking a, a, a temperature, a culture, a, a, a survey of where we are at, what level of abuse is happening, you know, what experiences uh, other students have had was a good start. Uh, and then, you know, going from there. And yeah, I mean, I, I would say it just it really laid the foundation for all of the policy changes. So every university was put on on call and has made changes. And uh, there there are places now that we know that students can go. And like I said, just even giving students the vocabulary, the tools to have a conversation, we're not there. Um, and I think, you know, it is the work of decades of feminists speaking up about the abuse that women face um, and then, and we know that that abuse is similar numbers and the military, it's the same or similar in workplace. Um, so we have these institutions, cultural institutions, systemic, um, systemic uh, uh, abuse, really, yeah. and, and sanctioned, essentially. If you're not disallowing it, then you're sanctioning it. You know, you're, yeah. you're allowing it. Um, and... I mean, I can't tell you how many young women have left their schooling, their education, their university that they spent their lives trying to get to uh, because of abuse and assault. When meanwhile, the perpetrator, you know, continues on. We protect the perpetrators. Um, well, and and money, to your point, it's all about protecting the money and the endowments and the reputation of the school. And I think that's also where another hero kind of rises through here is Melinda Manning, who was the associate dean of students since 2011. She simply admitted on your documentary that the UNC just didn't do enough, if anything, to protect these women. And then the University of North Carolina pressured former, this is per her lawsuit, dean of students Melinda Manning to underreport sexual assault cases, according to a complaint filed by the, to the U.S. Department of Education. Three students and one former student, which is the aforementioned, it is uh, Annie Clark and uh, Andrea Pino. And this says that UNC has violated the Clery Act, Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 and Title, S Title X and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, among other federal laws. And so it says here, we spoke with junior Andrea Pino, one of the students who submitted the complaint last month. A rape survivor couldn't say much at the time, but she told us that Manning was the reason she didn't drop out of school after her sexual assault. And Melinda is the reason I'm still here on campus, she said. 
She's the one that helped me withdraw from the class that was triggering me. She's the only person who listened to us. And Melinda's still there at USC and UNC. And that I was also surprised about because you featured other brave women who came forward and were removed from their duty <laughs> based on the fact that they actually rose up and said something. So I think this is the, the neat thing about this documentary for me was that it videos in general, <laughs> that's just coming from my past in the media, video is a great way to tell stories. And the stories that were encapsulated within the documentary, I thought were very well researched. The citations were obvious and welcomed and chronicled. And then I had to go look. What are people saying about the movie? It, UNC pushed back, Harvard pushed back, a whole bunch of different universities pushed back. Institutionals, institutions themselves pushed back pretty hard on this narrative, but they didn't have any specifics to offer up. They would say things like, well, they ran too far with the narrative or they supported narratives that weren't simply weren't true, or these are just anecdotal. And it's just not the case because the data is everywhere. And that was another thing for me that I thought was so powerful. And then there was a great example offered up by, and I, her name escapes me, but she said, imagine if you will, that you said to men after they were accepted to the university, your son has a 25% chance of being shot in a drive-by shooting by fellow students here at our university. So welcome us and welcoming your son to our university, because that's basically the statistical uh, equivalence in the sense that, yes, if I have two young boys, they're 11 and nine. So if I push them out to Berkeley and say, hey, congratulations, guys. And then we got the notice after they were accepted that, oh, by the way, there's a 25% chance that your child may be shot as they attend our university. That obviously would be a bit of a deterrent for most parents and most students for that matter. So the fact that you have a 16% chance of being raped on a college campus means that the universities at scale have yet to recognize what this means. And as we chatted about a bit off camera, even as a business person, which you obviously qualify, and so do I, it seems misplaced in the sense that if you could be the beacon as a university specific to safety of the students, and just specifically on this case, obviously safety exists in, in myriad other areas, but as it relates to sexual assault, I would think that the university endowment programs would grow. I would think that the actual wanting of young men and women to enter the university would grow. And I think the reputation of the college would grow. And not necessarily, it goes back to the point, yes, 5% of these men are accused falsely. So obviously we have to look into that because that ruins a man's life. That happened to a buddy of mine in college. Um, and he and she later retracted the the accusation. But the 95% is what we need to focus on. We need to focus on the fact that that's happening. That's real. That data is not manufactured. It's not something that we can say, oh, well, there's different, you know, no, there's, well, there's, no, there's not. <laughs> this is black and white data. This is where we are. And this isn't just one university. This is across across the board. And and a lot of the universities you featured, Harvard, Yale, Columbia, the Ivies, UNC, Stanford, Berkeley, the best institutions in the world. These are not average schools that have a budgetary problem. They can't actually put a remedy in place specific to more policing or to more counseling. It's That was one of those things, I think, that was most alarming for me in that it wasn't one or two universities. It was almost every single one of them as though they've colluded with their speech to say, yeah. we really care about the safety and of the students that we bring into our university. 
and we take this very seriously. And it was just the same press release that went out to every single, you know, university after an assault or a rape took place on the campus. And I think that that, again, is is part of the problem. You can see it. It's, it's, a, it's a pattern of language. It's a pattern of nomenclature. It's a pattern of templatizing something this horrible and, and attempting to sweep it under the proverbial rug. Those yep. are the things I thought were uh, most illuminating in your, in your documentary. I think you nailed that, that you, you absolutely pulled all of those um, truths together. And that's an excellent assessment of what has happened and what is happening and uh, what needs to change, continue to change. I and mean, we have to continue to shine a light on this so that they will change. Um, and I absolutely couldn't agree more. It's not just what happened, but it's also what didn't happen in these cases. And, uh, you know, my goal is prevention. And then if prevention doesn't work, you know, what does justice look like? And uh, what is moving forward look like? What does healing look like? What resources, what what is what is offered after a report happens? Um, what resources? And um, yeah, I mean, Annie and Andrea and all of Kamala um, Wilmington and so many other survivors who uh, came together and shared their stories. And even though it was really hard for them to do this and to come forward like this, um, they did it for all of us. Um, so I really applaud them and raise them up and shine a light on their their bravery and courage. Yeah, no, they were very impressive women. Do you know what took place or what has happened with uh, Annie specifically or Andrea? Are they still advocates on this front? Are they still lobbying on behalf of, of women and girls and their safety, not only on college campuses, but within the, you know, the, the United States of America itself? Yes, they continue to be incredible resources and advocates and ambassadors for the, this issue and are, you know, always, always um, putting women first and women and children and uh, students working to create a safer space uh, for all of us. But yeah, they, they're they doing well. Um, I get to talk to Annie every now and then, exchange some messages, Andre. Um, together and uh, there, it's really great to see them thriving. And uh, I'm sure you know they they have learned a lot in this process and have become fierce, fierce leaders. Right? Yeah, they sure appear to be, and and that's kind of where I'm hoping to hear some good news. <laughs> this movie was seven years ago. Yeah, and you mentioned 300 universities have actually altered their. Let's just say they're, I don't know what you would call it, but how they manage, yeah, how they manage these claims. Is there anything that's been demonstrable that we can speak to, that we can look at, that has surprised you as an advocate for the last 30 years after this movie was brought to the fore and after it received all the attention that it did? I mean, we both know from the business world that awareness is really important. And I think that was the neatest thing about this film is that it brought through storytelling the tragedy of what's taking place on college campus is specific to women and girls. And I think that after that, it's it's harder to bury it if you have that much awareness. Barack Obama being one of the presidents, obviously, that came and talked to this. I haven't heard a lot about it even over the last couple of administrations. Not that it's not that there's nothing else for them to talk about, 
in this very complicated world. But have you seen anything again that that is heartwarming or encouraging on this front, specific to the documentary's awareness? Do you see do you see any real change? Yeah, I mean, it, it's both. It's it's kind of a double edged sword. I think um, you know, on one hand, yes, Me Too broke. Um, it became clear that this wasn't just, you know, 50 survivors and some universities and like, you know, it, it wasn't that, that it's a bigger issue in our whole, in our society. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it, on one hand, I thought that, oh, you know, this is just how it is, Julie. Like, this is just what it is to be a girl. Like, I've had that message. Like, what do you think? Yeah, of course, of course this happens. Like, this is what, what it is to exist in a girl as a girl in a girl's body that you're just from the minute you're born, you have a higher risk to be assaulted. And, um, you know, I, I didn't want to accept that, but that, you know, there's a, that's a, a story that I was told and sometimes even rationalized and told myself to, um, despite all the work that I've done in the space, because of course it's really frustrating to get in and do it day in and day out. And, speak, you know, scream from the top of my lungs, like what is happening and not see any changes or just seeing, you know, um, you know, I thought also you mentioned, uh, the work I've done in, in rape kits uh, around rape kits, you know, after an assault is reported, we know we have over 400,000 untested rape kits in our country. This is after an assault is reported, a woman is so brave that she, or, or man is so brave and, you know, goes through this process of of getting a rape kit taken because they believe they're going to see justice. They're going to see an investigation. And yet less than 20% of evidence has ever been analyzed. And that's like step one. That's step one in this process. Like at least analyze your evidence. Um, and why is that, Julie? Is that budget? It goes back to the, well, they say it's budget, but it goes back to the cultural institutionalized systemic abuse that we face, that it is part of our culture that that is not something that we investigate you know you give resources to what you value and if you don't value women if you don't value the lives of girls if you don't value women's bodies women's souls um then you don't investigate it you just you get a you get the kit it gets taken and then it gets you know wrapped up and put into a warehouse unit and that we've seen happen all across um uh evidence lockers all across the country and the world. This is everywhere. I mean, we found rape kits going back to 1978, back to 1978 that just sat there with DNA that never dies, that DNA is forever. And we found names of perpetrators. And then we found the same DNA on 10 kits, 20 kits, 30 kits. And these people walk around repeat offenders all over our country and it's so frustrating. I mean, so so. Anyways, we we've done a lot of work around that. We've seen national rape kit reform uh, thanks to some of the work and uh, awareness that we've created uh, nationally. We sent a about, sorry to interrupt. What does that look like specifically? Rape kit reform. What it what is taking place there? Is it more dollars for the analysis? It's a it's a combination of of because actually analyzing DNA has become faster and less expensive right. on on the go actually right on site and you can analyze it in two hours it's actually not that 
much more complex. But what rape kit reform is, is that we have a process now, a notification to survivors of where their kit is in the process, where they exist, that it's not just manually written down on an index card, which it has been for years, stored on a little index card, uh, handwritten into an old-fashioned file cabinet that disappears and no one knows where it is. It goes into a black hole. And good luck. All right, hold on a second. Yeah, that was historically what they did with rape kits. Yeah. Is yeah. they took a five by eight cube card, they put it into an actual Rolodex file yeah. format, left it there, and put it, the evidence in a box in a warehouse, in case. Yes, on the off chance that an investigator or detective would actually want that, the evidence itself is is stored by a handwritten note on a five by eight yeah. card, like that, and then socked away in an f- actual physical file folder cabinet like you see on Hawaii Five O. Yes. So that, that yes, it is marked down lot, you know, a chain of custody, it gets Jesus. filed and stored into a cabinet or into file. And the actual evidence goes into a box or into a, a manila folder or something. And then they put it into warehouse. And then usually taxpayers are paying for evidence warehousing too for decades that they've never done anything with. So we saw that in the case in in Detroit. We we saw that everywhere, but Detroit was so egregious. Um, Detroit, when they were going through their bankruptcy, had an incredible um, prosecutor, Kim Worthy. And she uh, was a new prosecutor and she happened to be walking through all of the, um, you know, facilities of the police department and happened to walk into this warehouse downtown Detroit. And she said, what is all this? What What is this? And they said, oh, this is all of our rape kit. And she goes, what? These are all of our rape kits that we've been storing. And it went back, you know, 30, 40 decades, uh, 30, 40, 30, 40 years, three decades. And she was horrified. And so they went through a process of analyzing all of their their tests. And they found um, 2,700 of those kits had DNA that they could analyze, like that they could connect to a person. And 700 of those were repeat perpetrators that hit in every state in our country. So it's not a Detroit problem right. or a Chicago problem or in a Los Angeles problem. It's a national problem. So we have rape kits sitting in Detroit with perpetrators that live in every state in the country. And they're multiple times on evidence over and over again. So now, um, now there's a process. There's a notification. We showed that you can track, you know, you could with an RFID code, you can track and know at any given time where that evidence is. Has it been tested? Is it ready to be tested? What is, what's on the evidence? And a process for survivors to be able to go and find that. Right now, they would a survivor would call a police department like a couple of hours after their evidence is taken, usually thinking, hey, what's the status of my kit? What's the status of and then as days go by, weeks go by, months go by, your investigation is pending, analyzation of the of, of the kit. And then years go by and the survivor moves on with their lives. And most um and, and the kids never get tested. And so this happened also in Robbins, Illinois. Sheriff Dart, who's my sheriff in uh in Chicago, Sheriff Dart, uh uh there was a a, um, a police uh, chief in undocumented um, in, in Robbins, Illinois, and the department was under investigation for other matters. But Sheriff Dart had to take over the department, and um, he discovered these kits. Also, he he discovered hundreds of kits 
sitting in this locker of a detective for four decades. And they had to have a town square, a town hall where they brought in members of the community to share this news and to um, help help the community. And there was a, a an older lady who came up to him after the meeting was over. And she said, you know, I gave, uh, submitted a, my body up for, um, to, to submit these rape, this, to, to participate in a rape kit after my assault. And um, I never knew what happened to my evidence and, and my case. And Sheriff Dart found her her rape kit, her original rape kit. She was an older lady at this point and how hard that must have been for her. The tragedy, the complete devastation that she must have felt. Um, and they knew who the perpetrator was, but the, the uh, statute of limitations had run out by that time. And so my organization, Task 400K, we put forward a bill to halt it's just a band-aid. This isn't a fix, but to at least um, give survivors some time, we stop the clock on every rape kit in Illinois until it gets analyzed because it was such a crisis, such a egregious um, crisis of of complete. I don't. I mean, I, I don't even have the words for it. But uh, so so we stop the statute of limitations clock until the state figures out what they need to do and to analyze these kids. Um, Good for you. That's the, the really challenging thing is when you do have evidence show up, but the case only because of the neglect of the police department and the officials and the bureaucracy um, that this, these perpetrators get away um, because of negligence. Uh, so that is a wonderfully demonstrable example. So you actually put a, a pause on the statute of limitations as it relates to evidence. Now, the fact that this historically, and this is just up until when did this young lady DA take over in Detroit? What year was that where she realized this was happening? Um, this started happening, I would say, around 2007, 8, 9, 2009, 2010. Up until then, the storage of retention for rape kits was this atavistic method of writing them down on a cue card and putting it in a plastic file folder, putting it in a banker's box and then putting it inside a warehouse to rot. That was historically what we did with rape kits, 400,000 of which have never been looked at. Yes. As of now, you put a pause on the statute of limitations, which is wonderful. But two things that jump out for me. What are we doing about it now? to use technology. You mentioned FRAD tags, which is a really good start because if Walmart can use it to track their supplies from the truck to the shelf, we should be able to use the same technology Bingo. right, to track a rape kit to the investigation and allow the victim some level of comfort knowing that her case or his case is being looked at, that they do matter. That they're not just ignoring their claims. Yes. Okay. Is so. Are, is that happening then? Is are we actually using the technology we have available to us today moving forward, or is that still based on a city by city budgetary problem? Um, it is now happening. Um, more and more states are enacting rape kit reform using uh, what we've done in Illinois and in Chicago, and what Kim's done, Miss Worthy has done in. 
in Detroit and other places that have been progressively ahead of the curve. So they're using what we're doing as a kind of a playbook for what they should be doing. Um, and so there's been a few steps in that. First was each each um, each jurisdiction by the federal government was required to submit uh, an, a report of where they stood with their backlog, um, what they had on hand, what their plan it was to analyze, um, and what they plan to do going forward. Um, other states, like in my state, our governor, J.B. Pritzker, signed into law and put budget and money behind um, not only testing all of the kits and cleaning up the backlog, but also enacting new survivor notification, new software to track the kits. Um, tracking them is really important. And for letting survivors know, like you said, where it is on, in the process, putting some automation behind it, putting some technology, you know, giving the survivor the ability to be an advocate for themselves, creating transparency. Um, and that's been a huge uh, step. And then, um, and then, and then analyzing them in a timely manner so that, you know, if a kit comes in, we um, wanted to advocate and recommend that, you know, not more than a year is goes by before they're analyzed. And we were able to um, get, get DNA analysis, uh, you know, out, outsource uh, to private corporations, uh, the analyzation of DNA. Um, and so that, you know, people know that, like you said, you know, you order something, you don't even order it yet on Amazon, you hover over something and it, you know, you're, it's already tracking you and, and giving you like status of when it's going to be delivered every step of the way. How do we treat this most sacred evidence, the most sacred thing, um, you know, like garbage? I mean, my to your point, my recycled bottle that I throw in the recycle bin gets more care and attention and resources and funding than these rape kits. And this is yeah. horrific. I mean, it, it is completely, it, you know, Human Rights Watch called this the biggest human rights abuse that women in the United States in the United States face. I was shocked when I heard that because I thought it was going to be something else. I thought it was going to be like research dollars to breast cancer or, you know, something else. I could not believe that, you know, in the chapter about female genital mutilation in Egypt and, um, you know, human trafficking in Bangladesh, the chapter on the United States was 400,000 untested rape kits. It, it, you know, it is shocking. It's a scandal. It, the fact that we're not all marching in the streets over this is, you know, it blows me away. But um, I will say, like I said, like, I'm so proud of the work. And by raising awareness, we mailed, we Federal Express, every governor in our state, an untested rape kit. And we put a tracking number on it and we published their tracking numbers so that we could show how easy it was to do it in a timely manner, to track it, to follow it, to know, to have transparency. And we had several governors sign uh, a call to action. And uh, we're really, re really proud of that work uh, that we we had done to offer other advocates uh, and 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 people in this fight, you know, some of this information and, and resources and tools to go and fight in their communities. Um, but I will say, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I will say that 
being being a part of this work for over 30 years and seeing how many people have come into this umbrella and have become, um, you know, advocates, leaders of voice. It's so heartwarming because for so long it felt like I was one of the only people talking about it, at least in my community. And, you know, discovering people like Annie and Dre and, and so many people, um, you know, really was... I mean, it lifted a load off, but it made me feel like I wasn't the only one in the fight. And, and you know, I'll also just have to bring in intersectionality. You know, what white women face is pretty horrendous, but Black women and Latina women, you know, when they come in their report, they're even less heard than we are. And so I think it's really important that we also... um kind of shine a light on how many more extra challenges that a Black survivor or Hispanic survivor faces uh, just, you know, beyond. And and we tried to shine a light on that through On the Record, which highlighted Russell Simmons and his um, his assault on, on and his his coworkers uh, and team members and 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 whatnot and it really tried to get we gave voice to black women who already have a voice we just have to listen to them. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's very important piece to it as well. Another question that stumps out to me immediately is: Is there any interstate budgets for what you mentioned? So, if through a repository of documents specific to rape kits in Detroit versus the repository of rape kits in Minnesota, in Wisconsin, in California. Is there any cross-pollinization of these databases specific to offenders? Yes. To your point, if you have someone who has multiple assaults on women, that's very doable because we have automobiles and planes and people can, you know, cross state lines and do bad things. Is that part of the remedy as well as it relates to this? Okay. Yes, actually, when there is um, a DNA test and there is a hit, it goes into a nationwide database, uh, CODIS. And um, then it is, you know, the, it, it, every, every jurisdiction gets notified that okay. there is a perpetrator or the jurisdiction, like where the last perpetrator is. And they might be, you know, it might take them some time, but hopefully someone's watching that and paying attention. But yeah, it goes into an inter, uh, an even international, I think, but definitely a nationwide database. Good. Well, because those are the things that are important. I can tell I've spent hundreds of hours on defund the police reporting. And the one narrative that is most prominent is that it's a budgetary issue on almost everything. So it's and I don't need to get into that here, but the idea there is, and the reason I ask is that the officers, I interviewed a lot of beat officers, leadership, politicians on the subject, and the majority of things like body cameras, de-escalation training, anything to do with proper policing and or the best way they can remedy crime specific to our population is budgets. And so it, it seems to me that this was a budgetary issue. And to your aforementioned idea that we just didn't care enough as a group to to look at a remedy of something that is this egregious, 400,000 rape kits that have never been evaluated, whatever those numbers look like historically, I can't imagine them being any better. They're probably just dumbfoundedly awful where you think, oh, okay, for decades, we've done nothing on this. And I think that's, that's a perfect example of your lobbying 
and your advocacy over the last 30 plus years, Julie. And that's maybe a good place for me just to say thank you again for all your time for coming on True 30, but a much bigger thanks to bringing awareness to this, the plight of young women and girls. And the movie itself was a wonderful story. I think you highlighted some very powerful, amazing young women that I think are going to do great things. And that is one of those stories where tragedy does have benefits. In this case, it's these young women helping other women know they're not alone. They're still working on their behalf. You're still working on the behalf of people you don't know, the nameless, faceless women that are abused and tormented and ignored over this. So thank you again for everything you're doing on this front because we need it. And, you know, as I shared with you off camera, part of my duty at True 30 uh, is reporting on feminism, reporting on feminists like yourself, reporting on things that need to be brought to the fore. And I really appreciate your help in helping with the story today. And again, thank you for your time because I know you're super busy running a big company. Thank you. It's um, a privilege, truly a privilege to get to speak with you and share um, about this issue, the story, my own story. And, you know, I do hope that, you know, we um, hold survivors with, you know, great compassion and empathy um, and they're some of the most strongest, bravest, um, you know, beautiful people that I know that I've had the privilege of getting to share my life work with. And um, I'm just grateful that I'm here, that I made it through really, really, really hard times. And I didn't always know that I was going to. I definitely had um, some questionable moments, but I'm here and um, not going anywhere. And, um, you know, we're all in this together. And I just am giving big hugs to any survivors out there and letting them know that they are not alone. Well, thank you, Julie. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.